Support for this episode comes from the University of San Francisco's SWIG program in Jewish Studies and Social Justice, better known as JSSJ. The JSSJ department is excited to be offering a graduate-level certificate in JEDI, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. JEDI classes meet the moment with supportive learning that helps navigate an evolving Jewish community landscape. Upcoming courses include Antisemitism and Intersectionality with acclaimed professor Aaron Han Tapper and Environmental Justice and Jewish Perspectives, Land, People, and Power with renowned activist and educational leader Ariella Ronai Hinich. Apply by January 12th to get in on spring classes before they begin. Just head to usfca.edu slash jedi. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 413, Jews Across the Americas. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And today's episode features a conversation with two fascinating professors of Jewish studies about a book that they co-created called Jews Across the Americas. Before we get into it, we want to give you an important reminder that our next set of three-week mini-courses at the Unyeshiva are just about to begin. They begin in a couple of days. There are four different class options which begin on either January 14th, 15th, or 16th, so you still have time to sign up. You do that at judaismunbound.com classes, and I want to tell you just a little bit about the classes that are coming up. The first class is one called Choosing the Tribe, Jewish Conversion, Past, Present, Future, which is taught by Esther Hugenholtz, and it takes place on Sunday evenings in the U.S. This is not an intro to Judaism class meant for just folks in the process of converting. Rather, it's a look at the history of Jewish conversion, and it's a chance to think about possibilities for the future of Jewish conversion. Our second class is called Cosmic Bodies, Celebrating Queer and Jewish Creativity, taught by Read Love and taking place on Monday evenings. For more on that, check out our bonus episode released just a week ago that featured Read Love. Third, we have a mini course called Jewish and Buddhist, Pagan, Christian. Can you do that? taught by past podcast guest Susan Katz-Miller. That's taught on Tuesdays during the day in the U.S. You can learn about Susan Katz-Miller and all of her wisdom by listening all the way back to episode 73 about her book, which is called Being Both. And we're so excited to have her back and now teaching with us. Finally, we have a class called Mishnah Unbound, taught by Lex Rofberg. So if you want some more Lex Rofberg in your life, that class is also taught on Tuesday evenings in the U.S. If you've ever heard the word Mishnah, but never really had the chance to look at what's in that formative text of rabbinic Judaism, now's your chance. So for any of these classes, just head over to judaismunbound.com classes where you can register. And we always want to remind you that financial aid is available. So if the reason why you might not sign up for these classes is you think they're too expensive and you can't afford it, there's a really easy way on each of the registration pages to click a link and request financial aid, which we're very likely to approve. So don't hold back. If you need financial aid, please apply for it. And now let's get into our conversation with Laura Arnold-Liebman and Adriana Brodsky, the co-editors of a new book called Jews Across the Americas, 1492 to the Present. Jews Across the Americas is a groundbreaking source book that captures the historical diversity and cultural breadth of American Jews across Latin America, the Caribbean, Canada, and the United States. A lot of these books feature just sources about Jews in the United States. So this captures the entirety of Jews in all of the Americas and looks at a lot of the primary documents as well as having scholarly interpretations. 
Jews Across the Americas builds upon new developments in Jewish studies. It engages with transnationalism, race, sexuality, and gender, and highlighting the lived experiences of those often left out of Jewish history. We'll get a lot more into that in our conversation today. And so we're thrilled to welcome the book's co-editors, Laura Liebman and Adriana Brodsky. Just a few words of introduction. Laura Arnold Liebman is the William R. Kennan Jr. Professor of English and Humanities at Reed College, and she is about to become Professor of Jewish American Studies in the Efron Center for the Study of America at Princeton University. Laura Liebman is Vice President of Program for the Association for Jewish Studies, and she is the author of The Art of the Jewish Family, a History of Women in Early New York in Five Objects, a book that won the National Jewish Book Awards in three different categories. Laura Liebman has held visiting positions at Bard Graduate Center, Oxford University, the University of Utrecht, and the University of Panama. Our second guest, Adriana M. Brodsky, is Professor of Latin American and Jewish History at St. Mary's College of Maryland. She is the author of a book called Sephardi Jewish Argentine, Creating Community and National Identity, 1880 to 1960. Adriana Brodsky has published on Sephardi food, schools, beauty contests, and Latin American Jewish history in general. She is currently finishing a manuscript on Argentine youth in Zionist movements between the 1940s and the 1970s. Adriana Brodsky is co-president of the Latin American Jewish Studies Association, LAJSA. The book they've put together is a tour de force, a collection of some amazing primary sources and commentary on them from a very wide range of scholars across the Americas. So we're excited to dive in. Laura Liebman, Adriana Brodsky, welcome to Judaism Unbounded. So great to have you. Thanks for having us here. Yes, wonderful to be here. Well, I was thinking that if I were passing your book in a bookstore and I didn't know what this podcast was about, but I had just seen this book, I probably would look at it and say, oh, the title of the book is Jews Across America. And that is definitely not the title. And I'm sure that you chose the title that it is Jews Across the Americas very, very carefully. And I would love to understand the difference between a book that's called Jews Across the Americas versus a book that would have been called Jews Across America. That's a great question. And we did think a lot about this. Coming from the field of uh, Latin American history, Latin American Jewish studies, there's always a sense that we in the rest of the Americas are being written out of these stories that whenever the word America is utilized in connection with Jews or not, there is only a discussion of the United States. And so in a sense, what we wanted to do with this book was to reclaim the Americas in its fullest expression. So not just the United States, not just North America, which is sometimes, you know, what it comes to signify, but actually, you know, both the continent and the Caribbean, so the islands as well, to think about the Americas as uh, this hemisphere and not just as across the United States. A lot of times when people from the United States are traveling in other parts of this hemisphere, they're suddenly shocked to realize that other people, when they say America, actually mean something totally different. And I think this book really embraces that idea that America isn't just the United States and that we really challenge how we understand the Jewish experience 
not only across the Americas, but also in the United States by thinking about that broader hemispheric history that would include Latin America, but also the Caribbean and Canada, and really how that challenges our understanding of even the most basic of terms in American Jewish history, what is America? When people start American Jewish history, and they mean United States, they typically start with 1654, and suddenly the Jews appear seemingly out of nowhere in what will become New York City. From another area of the Americas, just to be clear. From another area of the Americas, but that's sort of like lesser important. They were captured by pirates or some mythic thing, right? And it really starts off this idea that somehow New York is always already the center of the history of Jews in these continents. And we actually start much earlier. So we start with the expulsion of Jews from Iberia and then translate a whole bunch of documents of early Jewish experience before 1654 of where were those Jews, both in the Spanish and Portuguese colonies, but also a little bit of what's going on in the Caribbean as well. And for me, that's just radically, this radical moment where it was very hard to do that kind of teaching before because those sources were kind of fragmented off in places and they were often untranslated. So for somebody to put together those materials for a course or an understanding of like, how did those early experiences impact what was happening in 1654, you really had to do a lot of work on your own and you had to already know about that history. And really people aren't trained that way typically. People are trained in these like one country ways. That change suddenly recognizes, huh, there's this earlier group of people who are struggling with issues that then impact why people end up in New York. And honestly, even after 1654, the center of American Jewish history still doesn't move up to New York or to the United States until the 1820s. So you're basically impoverishing our sense of what are the people dealing with Why are they coming to the United States by not looking at the people who, first of all, migrate there, but also people who migrate not only from Europe, but migrate from other locations, including Latin America and the Caribbean? Another example about why it is important to have this hemispheric um, gaze is that by thinking of America as the United States, we actually fail to see the ways in which Jews are utilizing similar or different strategies to adapt to this uh, new land, to these the political realities that they encounter, the various different ethnic groups that they encounter in the countries in which they settle. And so we begin to perhaps be better able at discussing the ways in which Jews as a whole are creating and adapting to the different places in which they settled. And so one of the things that we as editors did is think about what, for example, one type of source that somebody worked on in the United States, in what ways we could also bring a similar type of source or a similar type of issue in another part of the Americas. And so in a sense, we are covering for the reader as they delve into these chapters, the ways in which we see Jews acting similarly, and when it is that they are not, and what can explain those differences. 
I'm actually flashing back to an episode we had. It's it's not on a super similar topic to this, but with David Walensky. And he was talking about actually really in left field. He was on this like Star Trek cruise in the Caribbean and he went two years. And the reason he was bringing this up is because one year, one of the stops was Curacao and all the Jews on this trip learned, oh, one of the oldest, or I think it's the oldest synagogue in the Caribbean is in, in I think Cur- it's the oldest existing standing, still standing. There you go. So they stopped in Curacao and they had like a whole crew of Jewish Trekkies, which is to say Trekkies, not all of them, are, but a lot of them are, um, who like took over and like did a tour of the synagogue and the tour guide said it was one of the biggest tours they'd done in a while. And he mentioned he's going soon on a second Star Trek cruise. And this time around, they're stopping, I think, in St. Thomas, which also has one of the oldest synagogue buildings in the Caribbean, both of which trace back as far or I think farther in the Curacao case than the oldest ones in the United States, which I think often surprises people because, again, the story that, I mean, most people have no story at all of American Jewish history. I think even like most people don't even know the date 1654, right? But like of the people that have any story of Jewish history in the Americas or American Jewish history, they tend to have a story that mostly revolves around, forget 1600s, forget even 1700s, like the late 1800s and beyond. It mostly revolves around Eastern European immigration to the United States, beginning in the 1880s, continuing into the early 20th century. And that's kind of, to the extent that, you know, in a Sunday school classroom or in a Jewish community center or whatever, that you talk about American Jewish history, it's usually about that, which it's so much of a small subsection time-wise, geography-wise, everything-wise. And so what I'm kind of asking is, can you give us a window into sort of the distance between the story, the myth, the, the collective narrative that we tend to have? And obviously, it's not always the same exact narrative in every place, but sort of the rough sketch a lot of us get about Jewish history in whether it's the United States or every once in a while beyond that in this hemisphere. What's the distance between that and the story that you're telling through these sources? I think for a lot of us, the story that we get has to do with the great migration that happens in the 1880s to the 1920s. For a lot of American Jews, that dates to when their own families might have come to the United States. And although there were both Sephardic and Ashkenazi immigrants coming in that wave, that was predominantly an Ashkenazi migration from Eastern Europe. And those people who came over ended up being the first people in American Jewish history who started writing histories. And so they wrote about that group of people predominantly. And even today, you see like the vast majority of American Jewish history gets written about things that happened after 1880 in the United States, you kind of focus on the Lower East Side and spread out a little bit. And really, by pushing backward in time, we're looking to see who was here before. And one big difference that happens is the early migration is more predominantly Sephardic. And so you start to see this longer history of the kind of balancing that happens between Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews. The other huge difference is what we refer to in the book as a shifting centers. The central place of authority for Jews in the America shifts. So very early on, most Jews are in the Spanish colonies and are experiencing the Inquisition. Then the center shifts to the Caribbean and it stays in the Caribbean until the about the 1820s. And starting in the 1820s, you get this huge influx of Jews 
from Germany and from Germanic lands. Sometimes that will be the beginning of American U.S. Jewish history. But then we start seeing the shift more northern. But sometimes that suggests like everybody moves north and nothing else happens, you know, below um, Florida or something like that. Everything disappears after that. And I think one of the things that's so interesting about the shifting centers is it doesn't mean the other places disappear. We're actually still seeing a lot of people in those later migrations, particularly after, say, during World War II, we're seeing people who can't get into the United States first going to Canada, the Caribbean, or to Latin America, and maybe they stay in those places or they use it as a stopping point. A lot of that first generation of American religious leaders comes from the Caribbean as they migrate northward. People bounce around and they move around looking for different opportunities and where places are welcoming, right? The U.S. is not a safe haven all of the time. I would like to say that the way in which uh, those of us who are interested in the history of Jews in, in Latin America say, that is also a partial story. We tend to focus on um, the consequences of, of the Inquisition. So we are aware, right, the history of, of the presence of Jews on this side of the Atlantic started before the years of, of mass migration at the end of the 19th century. So we are aware, right, that there were crypto-Jews or Jews who, um, you know, were converted uh, to Christianity but continue to practice Judaism inside their homes. But we don't tend to pay a lot of attention to other empires in the region, say, you know, those in the Caribbean. And so we seldom learn about the experience in Suriname or, you know, Curaçao. And so, you know, the ways in which these uh, presented very different ways for Jews to participate. So those uh, in Latin America who are perhaps a little bit more aware of a longer span of time uh, with regards to the presence of Jews are also limited in our understanding of the full breadth of the history of Jews in the Americas because we tend to just focus on the Spanish and the Portuguese empires. You know, Jews are crossing borders and moving back and forth. And so the stories are not stories of just coming and staying and of stasis, but rather, right, of movement and of crossing these borders between the Americas as well. So I dove into some of the sources in your book. We haven't talked about sort of how the book is structured so much. I mean, there are a slew, a slew of sources in this book, mostly like three-page, four-page windows into a primary source. So there's usually a, a brief intro of what the source is, and then you get to see the source, whether it's, you know, a letter or a artwork or a something or a document, a governmental document from some moment in time. Um I wanted to dive into one in particular because I think it will help us get a sense of some of the book's specifics. Um, Suriname came up in Adriana's response. I was fascinated by a document that is titled Petition by the Jews of Color, Suriname 1793. I don't want to say too much about it. I want to hear it from you. But the reason I bring it up is because it is a fascinating window into 1793 and into Suriname, into a country that I was not aware of the role that Suriname played in the Jewish history of the Americas. It gives a specific set of windows in just a couple pages into really important dynamics that are worth thinking about, and it ties to conversations happening now. Laura, can you take us into that essay? And Adriana, if you want to add as well, that'd be great. Yeah. So this is one of my favorite sources in the book. It's a petition that was written by 
a group of Jews of color who had broken away from the European-led congregations in Suriname. The, Suriname has one of the largest communities, along with Curacao, in early America, much larger than New York or Philadelphia at the time. And Jews of color had been stigmatized and discriminated against in the two main congregations, the High German and the Portuguese congregations. And just to make this crystal clear, by the other Jews, by, by, by white the other Jews, Jews in those congregations. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So and Suriname has very distinct racial laws that are different from Barbados, are different from many parts of the early United States, where you could have African ancestors and not be considered a person of color. And so they create this second tier system in their communities in response to how race is being developed in the colony that's completely against Jewish law, but has to do with people who are considered people of color by the local government have a second-class status in those congregations. And so they break away, form their own brotherhood. They want to become a congregation, and they're actually prohibited from doing so by the European congregations. The Jews of color appeal to the local government asking for the ability to become a full synagogue so that they can be called up to the Torah, so that they can have honors in this, both in the synagogue and after death when they're being buried, and the ability to vote. Even that has been denied to them in the, the congregation, and the government sides against them. So this is a petition where we see not just the men in that congregation, but also the women, the matriarchs of the community of Jews of color and Suriname really fighting back against the systems of oppression that are happening not just by non-Jews, but by Jews. A great reminder of something that we trace throughout the book, which is the history of Jews who are either Jews of color or multiracial Jews across time, that this is something that's integral to the history of American Jewish history and America's Jewish history from the beginning to now, as opposed to something recent, but also that we really felt that it was important to think about anti-Semitism and racism as not being separate, but being something that's always kind of in dialogue with each other. And to really help students think through what does it mean that there was oppression that's going on more broadly in the Surinamese society that then gets co-opted or taken into the Jewish community. It's not a fun part of the American story, but ignoring it has really severe ramifications in my mind for how we think about Jewish community today as well. It connects to something that I was curious about before when you were talking about the shifting centers. Like when the center shifts, like when most of the Jews in America are Sephardic, and then all of a sudden the Germans come and they start doing all this new Ashkenazi German stuff. And then they think that they're, you know, the king of the hill. And then all these Eastern Europeans come and they, you know, kind of start doing all these Eastern European Jewish things. I I'm wondering, like, how the people who are kind of left behind, meaning the, the previous dominant people, how they handle that, like how they think about or or what we see in their writings or in their thinking, how it changes from the time when they were the top dog to the time when they're now lower down. What do we see in terms of that? 
So I think what's interesting is they may not be the top dog in terms of numbers, but in terms of social status, the previous generation of immigrants tends to be the people who have the highest social status. So when we get the Eastern Europeans coming in, the German Jews are the people who are the high status Jews. When the German Jews come in, it's the Sephardi Jews from the earlier migration that really reign over the social scene. But I think this gets back to this relates to the Surinamese example in that we have this migration. The Jews in Suriname don't stay in Suriname. When things collapse in the Caribbean in terms of the economy, they move north and they become part of northern communities so that even the the most famous leaders of early congregations in Philadelphia and New York, a lot of them have ties to Suriname and to other parts of the Caribbean or came from there directly. And we see the German Jews who are coming in interacting with that earlier generation of immigrants and trying to like position themselves vis-a-vis those that older generation who are now more American than they are. And you have the the recent immigrants coming in and sort of you did air quotes around more American. Just I know I know you didn't mean that in an objective truth more, sense. Yeah, air quotes around more American, right? Like this sort of idea that that people who have been here longer are explaining to new Jewish immigrants or newer Jewish immigrants what it means to be an American Jew, how to fit into American society. Very commonly, the earlier immigrant groups will set up resources for the new immigrants that help them assimilate and help them get their feet on the ground, making money and getting jobs and going to school, but also honestly transmitting that idea of what a good American Jew would be. And I wanted to perhaps add in modern Latin America, in many cases, the first to arrive were not the Ashkenazi Jews, but where um, those Jews from the Ottoman Empire who spoke Ladino, and which is the language that started being shaped in, in Spain prior to the expulsion in 1492, that then you know, was developed and kept by these communities as they settled elsewhere in the uh, Mediterranean. But they chose the Americas because of the possibility of you know, adapting better through uh, the use of Ladino, which is very similar um, to Spanish, at least. You know, they, they figured that they would be able to adapt better. And so in, in, in many areas of Latin America, those first uh, you know, Jews that settled in the modern nations that had been created at the very beginning of the, of the 19th century are Sephardim who act as the hosts when these larger groups of Ashkenazi Jews who are leaving mostly um, Eastern Europe because of the of the pogroms in, in Russia mostly, when they arrive, the communities that are standing and have been shaped for a couple of decades are the Sephardim who are welcoming these Jews. And so in a sense, just by opening our eyesight to these other spaces in which things, you know, it happened differently we begin to complicate, right, the simple stories and, you know, explain the the diversity um, that exists in the continent. So when the original immigrants come to North America and to Latin America, South America, and all these places, they're Sephardim. And then at some point, Ashkenazim start to come. And like you're saying, those Sephardim are welcoming them, are the people who are in the higher positions in society. But at some point that changes, right? And now we live in a time where most 
Jews, at least in North America, are Ashkenazi and don't have their eyes open to Sephardim, right? Don't appreciate that they were the first Jews in America and sort of have this, as we've called it many times, Ashkenormative version of Judaism. And I'm wondering about the experience of the Sephardim through that transition, you know, that here are people that when the immigrants first came, they were in these high social positions and welcomed them and did all this work. But over time, somehow their position was lost so much so that now they feel, I mean, there are many Sephardim today who consider themselves Jews of color and identify with the other Jews of color in America that are not given status within Ashkenazi Jewish communities. And I'm just curious about the path, how that happened, but also how the people felt as it was happening. In Latin America, the presence of Sephardi Jews was larger in general. The other part of the story is that in Latin America, there's a lot more Arabic speakers that come and settle. And so the numbers, in a sense, allowed them to afford maintaining their own communities. And so in a sense, the separation into right the synagogue for um, Sephardi Jews or the synagogue for the Jews from an Arabic-speaking country uh, is going to allow these groups to retain and not necessarily be uh, challenged or displaced by the Ashkenazim. In the overall communities that get created in order to represent the Jews, then, you know, there are issues of, okay, yes, I don't like the fact that all the representatives of the Jewish community to the government of Argentina say are mostly Ashkenazi Jews. And so they begin to define strategies to have their voices included. And so what we see is, you know, internal fights about, well, you you guys are not the only Jews here in town. We are here and we want to have our voices represented. And so these internal issues are part and parcel of the construction, uh, you know, during the process of the construction of these Jewish communities. These Jewish communities are born out of these fights for truthful representation, um, which in Latin America, as I say, you know, it, the de demographics is a little bit different because there's a lot more uh, Sephardim and then also the Mizrahi Jews, right, or Jews from Arabic-speaking countries. Well, I have a question about your book, and I think it's also a question about history, which is the bottom line is I'm curious for you to share with us some of your favorite sources from this book, some of the ones that you feel most excited about, most surprised by. More deeply, though, I'm also wondering, as academic historians, I would imagine that there's a professional historian mindset that says history is valuable simply because it's history. We should know everything that there is to know. And yet, I think that there's also a question, and maybe this goes to the utility of this book within the academy versus the utility or the way that this book might be used outside the academy. I think outside the academy, a lot of us want to say, tell me stories about history that deeply matter for the times in which we live. Are there stories here? Are there things that if we understood that X, Y, or Z happened in history, we would be able to construct a new narrative about what might happen in the future, in part because people can't tell you X thing is un-Jewish if actually it was the thing that a majority of Jews were doing 100 years ago. It's just that we forgot about it over the last century. Those tend to be some of the things that 
I'm most excited about, I think we as a podcast tend to be most excited about in terms of history, is finding these things that happened in the past that kind of explode your sense of what is kosher or not, so to speak. And one of the things, you know, that I noticed in your book and that we've had other books has to do with, for example, queerness. You know, that this isn't some modern phenomenon that just happened in the 80s. You know, this is something that Jews knew and were thinking about that in some ways what's really important about that is it explodes the argument that, oh, all of a sudden everything was great with Judaism and that all of a sudden these queer folk came along and made all kinds of new problems and now we have to deal with them, you know, which sometimes is a mindset that people seem to be saying implicitly or often even explicitly and to say, no, 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 this has always been part of Judaism and this has always been part of Judaism in America, in the Americas, would actually be helpful to reframe some of those kinds of conversations that tend to uh, be the ones that people today are saying, oh, it's just you young, newfangled people that are causing problems for something that was working for 2,000 years in exactly the same way. Yeah, one of my favorite sources. So just so it's clear, there's a whole lot of people who contributed their sources. So we went out and we there's over 70 people who wrote different chapters for this book for about those different sources. And they kind of picked their favorite things that they they love to use in the classroom or in their own work. Including many past guests who will shout out in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So one of my favorite, favorite sources comes from a scholar named Noam Siena, who included the story of a person who came to New France, so what would become later Canada, from France, Iberia. And that person changed their gender presentation in different parts of their lives. And they were uncovered when they were in New France, not only as being seemingly being biologically female, even though they were presenting as male, but also as being Jewish, even though they were presenting as being Christian. And it's the testimony that came before the colonial administrators before the person got sent back to Europe. And those sorts of stories for me, and this is something from the 18th century, a source, so important, I think, for really shaking up the discourse about What's going on with gender binaries today? Why? What is this new thing with pronouns? I find that to be a great source for getting students to talk about, okay, what pronouns do we use for this, this individual in the past? How does that reflect our understanding of the past? What pronouns are being used at that particular moment? So those sorts of interventions to me are so important. Another favorite source that I have is one that comes from much later and from Brazil, and is by Aaron and Cecilia Sturk. And it is a translation of recipes from the Amazon from early Moroccan immigrants to Brazil who settled in the Amazon. And you see them using Amazonian fish and plants and combining that with Moroccan foods that you would experience in other parts of the Americas from Moroccan Jewish immigrants. For me, that again, is like one of those great moments of thinking about how Jews build resilience, right? We we don't just become part of the Americas, but we're constantly also reaching back and bringing culture with us. And so it's that great intermelding of what it means to be an American Jew, right? Like you're a Jew, you're bringing the things from tradition and you want to keep those traditions alive, but you're also combining them with what's locally available. 
that they call that fish Hamazon or something, you know, like Birkat Hamazon, you oh, know, because it was from the Amazon. Dan. Dan, you did it. Sadly, no. That would have been fantastic. <laughs> See, that, that would be the way to say that it's always been a thing. These fish are from Sinai. <laughs> that's why we have Birkat Hamazon from the fish from the Amazon. So each of you, I think, in different ways has hinted in your answers today to something I want to explore deeper. You talked about how we seem to segment among historians, like you specialize in a country. And I'm really interested in diving deeper into that, mostly because I think totally, completely, like I and we do that as Judaism Unbound. Like I, I try not to be like the stereotypical American that thinks the world begins at California and ends at Maine, but I, I think I do fall into that trap sometimes. And I'm flashing back, Dan and I went to Limud, the, the Jewish Learning Festival in England a number of years ago. And we were there for a bunch of days, and it was a, an environment where there, there were a lot of people from a lot of different countries. And there were enough Americans there that like being one of the Americans was like a meaningful identity to me in a way that it almost never is. Like when you're, when you're in the country that you think of yourself as inhabiting as your identity, you sometimes fail to look at what that identity means. Like, I think Americans in certain senses are the worst people in the world at thinking about what it means to be American. Because like most of the time we don't think about it because we are just doing it. It's the it's the water we swim in, to, to use the classic metaphor. And so for those of us, no matter where we live, and shouts to the 20% of our podcast who do not live in America, by the way, that about 20% of our listeners are in other countries, Canada, Israel, UK being the most strongly represented. But I'm kind of curious if you can... Make the case. I don't think people will need to be heavily convinced, but like, can you articulate why is it so important for us to do that learning across different countries? Why might it be a problem that we structure our departments at universities as Brazilian studies here, American studies here, nation by nation or area by area, as opposed to really relishing what it might mean to be able to look at one's own cultural context, nationally or otherwise? and put it in conversation with others. Like your book is so passionate about doing that. You don't seem to have consecutive entries from the same country very much. You seem to jump and that's great from my perspective. So like how might we benefit if we pushed back against this country by country by country situation? One thing that I think is so helpful about thinking hemispherically is there's been this long-standing myth of American exceptionalism, by which we mean U.S. exceptionalism. There are things that happen in the United States that are, make us so different and so much more important than other places. And that's been something that scholars have been pushing up against. And one of the things that is so fascinating about doing the comparative approach is you really start to see, oh, actually... That kind of is just how it went during this time period, right? So, for example, there's some some lovely letters in our collection that are from German Jews who went to Chile. And I have to say, they could have been by German Jews who went someplace else. And you're like, ah, German Jews migrated during this time period. And these are the kinds of things they struggled with. It isn't an American situation thing or a U.S. situation thing. So I think there's that aspect of it. But you can also, by this sort of traveling that happens in the book, get a sense of what is really distinctive that you just took for granted. And I know that I had done a Fulbright back in the 90s to 
Panama and I taught at the University of Panama and I lived in the Jewish community. In Panama, it's 95% Sephardic and it's kind of split between Portuguese Jews and Syrian Jews with the Syrian Jews having a tremendous amount of power and prestige. And the Ashkenazi Jews are kind of like eh, the mad Jews. Um, no offense <laughs> to the Ashkenazi Jews in Panama, but they just don't have the same social cachet that the Sephardic community had. And I felt like that moment for me was so eye-opening of my assumption of what it meant to be an Ashkenazi versus a Sephardic Jew, that it really transformed how I understood Jewishness in really key ways and really shaped my work that came after that. What are the assumptions that American Jews make or U.S. Jews make about being in the Americas? And I think in some ways our book gives people that opportunity to travel and to see themselves from an outsider position on some level, right? That you're seeing, oh, wait a second. I thought this was just like totally always was this way. But if I would just look at another country that's pretty nearby, I would find out that actually is not the standard way that things happen. So I think both of those happen, right? Both that recognition, the U.S. is not as exceptional as we've been led to think. And maybe a recognition of when I've made assumptions that this is just the way it is to be a Jew that are just totally false or constructed by the way I was raised in the the culture in which I was raised. I mean, coming from the field of, of Latin American history and uh, Latin American Jewish studies, we feel like we have to write ourselves into that history that, in a sense, in this case, the uh, American Jewish history has left us out. And so it's almost as if we have this activist position of saying, hey, hey, not just over there, over here too. A sort of, you know, a reminder, a constant reminder that this is not, um, that this types of experiences do not say anything about necessarily about the United States, right? But that it might say something about the Americas, right? The sort of these ideas of liberalism in the Americas, you know, kind of enlarging and broadening the way in which we we think about the experience of these Jews and this larger context, I think, in the sense of, you know, demanding that the history of Jews in these other regions of the Americas get written into the story so that then we can perhaps begin to really understand what the Americas meant for the Jews and the type of Jewish identity that grew out of the American context. So we love the notion of unbound, which is always funny to talk about people who write books that are, in fact, bound. But there are ways in which your book is not just bound. So you hinted at some of them off the air, but can you tell us a little bit about unbound ways in which you came to the determinations of which sources to use? Part of what's radically different about this source book than other source books that have come before is the types of sources that we have. And I really do think those types of sources allow us to get at those alternate histories that we've been talking about. One of the things that people talk about is when you're doing women's history, you don't want to just add women and stir. Like you don't have exactly the same sources that you need to question. How were the kinds of sources forcing me into a particular limited vision of what it meant to be a Jew and only focused on certain individuals? So in this collection, the fact that we're looking at clothing, we're looking at portraits, we're looking at houses, we're looking at music, we're looking at 
advertisements from stores that women owned during the colonial period. That variety changes who the actors are in Jewish history. And so for me, that's a crucial way that this is kind of unbound from the kinds of histories we've seen before, that we're not just adding in new people to the previous conversation. We're really trying to change the way that history is framed from the ground up. I have a out of left field question, maybe, but I, I think it's important, which is your book is a book. And also there's a website and A, our listeners should go to it, jewsacrossamericas.com. And I want to start by commending you. People have not gone out of their way to make digitally accessible companions to the textbooks or other kinds of books that they make. Um, I think that's a really significant step. I'm curious to hear the origin story of that website, what led you to make the decision to have one? And I encourage people to go to it at, even as you're answering so that they can sort of experience this in real time. Like what features are there? I mean, you have some cool resources. You have ways that people can channel this book into their teaching. You have a student hub. How did that come together and what are its contents? You know, this is completely kudos to Laura because she's the one that spearheaded the practical aspect of putting this together. But I will want to perhaps very briefly explain uh, the first thing that came to our mind as, as for the reason of a website. And that was because we knew that the documents and the material that we had to include in, this t in, in the text had to be translated into English if originally they were not. The idea that the students would miss the chance of seeing the original object or the original text or the original letter was something that just broke our hearts because, you know, the materiality, the way in which it looked, the language in which it was written, the spelling mistakes, all that, of course, right, uh, is, is lost uh, in this act of translation for the purpose of making it accessible to the readers. And so the first thing that we thought is we need to bring all these sources, all these original sources, so that whoever is looking at this book can access these original sources in the language in which they were written, with the difficulty in trying to um, to understand the handwriting of and, and, and things like that. So in a sense, we were guided by this belief in the power of the original source that is in a sense lost whenever you know we translated it. But it does not just do only that. Part of it was trying to think about both how do we provide some of the extra resources? So whether that's the original sources or when somebody is like, I'm giving you four images of gravestones from Mexico, we can give you a lot more in the online archive and people can kind of use those in different ways. You have them in color, you can zoom in on them in the classroom. So there's that aspect to it, but really also trying to think about how learning has changed over time and to really think about what would be the best way to engage students and thinking about the book and the website together so that students have more interactivity. So for example, instead of just having a glossary at the end of the book, there are there's a glossary on, online, but there's also flashcards for each of the different chapters that students can go and test themselves um, whether they've learned the vocabulary or not. Similarly, there's interactivities in terms of how do you read an image. Uh, I came to this project as somebody who works a lot on material culture and 
I recognize that's kind of a different skill set that a lot of people might have. So there really are these online tutorials for the students of how to engage and get more out of the different sources. And because a lot of our sources are not just a text, but actually have this visual aspect to them or are three-dimensional or whatnot, having that space where students can really interact with them more was important. So it's not, at least from my perspective, part of it was really thinking about how people learn and how people engage with sources and how can we make this not just a duplicate of what you could find in a book, but actually enhance the learning process for people. So I I really do hope people will check it out. There's lots of just cool stuff that didn't make it into the book, as well as just enhanced versions of some of the things that are in the book. Obviously, you don't get all the introductions and all the other material that you have in the book. So it's definitely like a companion to it as opposed to a replacement for the book. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. It's been great being here. Thank you so much. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to remind you as we close out, Dan mentioned it at the top, but don't forget, we've got some amazing mini courses in the Onyeshiva starting and they're in just a couple days as this episode is released on Friday, January 12th. If you're listening after that, it may be that the last day to sign up before classes start is today. So uh, head to judiesmumbound.com slash classes, sign up for one of our four awesome mini courses. They are some sensational options, and you can learn more at that link. There is financial aid available, and we encourage you to apply for it if you need it. Another note as we close the episode is that we really, really love hearing from you. So please send us your thoughts, your questions, your ideas, your visions. Any of that is welcome via any of the following ways of being in touch with us. So there's our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram handles. All of those are at Judaism Unbound. There's our website, JudaismUnbound.com, where you can check out show notes for this episode, our other resources, all sorts of good stuff there. And you can email us at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. We also are super appreciative if you are able to support us financially, which you can do on either a monthly recurring basis or just via a one-time gift at judaismunbound.com slash donate. And the last thing we'd say is that, of course, support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.